All right. Well, our ushers are going to be bringing around Bibles and note sheets, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get one to you. Uh, as a general rule, I try to keep my embarrassing stories about my kids to a minimum so that they won't learn to hate church, but I have to share this one with you. Uh, when we take up the offering, I usually try to get my kids to participate with that, so whatever check we're going to turn in that week of the offering, I'll give it to one of the children, and then they get to put it in the bag when it goes by, and we just kind of rotate and let them take turns, and this week... Ben asked if he could do it. Well, Rosie is sitting in my hands, and she sees that Ben has something in her hands, and she wants it. So we're praying for the offering, and she's trying to get that check away from Benjamin. And so I didn't want to disrupt anyone, so I pulled my wallet out quietly. I took a dollar out, and I gave it to Rosie so that she could put something in the offering. And then when the offering bag came by, she put it in her pocket. <laughs> I just got conned in church by my own daughter, so... <laughs> So if you don't believe in the depravity of man, even very little, children need the Lord. Children need the Lord. All right. Well, this week, uh, the sermon that I'm going to be bringing to you, Lord willing, as we uh, work through Hosea chapter 2, is entitled Chastisement versus Condemnation. And the reason uh, that the, the sermon gained this title as I studied this week was that we have this contrast between the two ways that God deals with the sin of mankind. And if you've spent any time with us as a church, uh, we don't mince words about sin. Sin is something that everybody has to deal with. Every one of us has broken the law of God. We have all, therefore, earned the wrath of God. And everyone in the world will have to deal with that wrath. And it will happen in one of two different ways. Some will be experiencing the condemnation of God because of their sin, and rightfully so. Because God is a God of justice and He cannot tolerate sin forever, God will, when the time is right, bring everyone who has broken His law before the great white throne of judgment, and those who stand before Him without an advocate, without a substitute, will have to bear the wrath of God for the sins they have committed against Him. They will be condemned for breaking the law of God. When you when you violate the command of the one who has given you life, to whom you owe all of your, your breath and your well-being and your happiness, that's a serious, serious offense. And so that is one way that people will have to deal with their sin. They'll, they'll be condemned in it. But there is, there is another way that our sin might be dealt with, and that is through the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was willing to come and live a perfect life that in no way deserved punishment, when he willingly gave himself like a sinner would be given, he gave himself over to punishment on the cross and died like a criminal. He did so in such a way that our sin might be put upon him. And for those who have been redeemed in, in Christ, condemnation is no longer an issue for us. As my brother Stephen Taylor read earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But because we become a part of a family through salvation, there is something called chastisement. There is a sense in which we can't just run around and sin and do whatever we want and not expect the Lord to correct us from that. We've been dealing in the book of Hosea with the sins specifically of the northern kingdom. At the time that Hosea the prophet is giving the word of God to people, the kingdom of God, God's chosen people have been divided into two groups. In the north you have Israel and in the south you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the northern kingdom had been ignoring the law of God they had been for several generations uh, rejecting the prophets and worshiping false gods and putting their faith not in their one true God, but in 
these, power, these foreign powers, these other nations that offered allegiance and, and said that they would protect Israel if Israel would commit themselves to those nations. And so there was, there was a tremendous amount of unfaithfulness going on amongst the people of God in the northern kingdom. And so we're going to see today how there is a condemnation for those who are not really a part of the covenant. But for those, even in the northern kingdom, who proved to truly be a part of that covenant, they would experience a chastisement, a correction by their loving and good father that would teach them very important lessons about their sin, but that chastisement would be engineered to bring them back around to the love of God, that they might know it anew and might appreciate it even more than they did before they fell into their grievous sin. So we're in Hosea chapter 2 today, and we're going to begin with verse 14, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, behold, I will, allure her, uh, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there, shall, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, and with the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy." I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow for her myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Bow with me for a moment in prayer as we ready our hearts to consider what the word has to tell us today. Mighty God, may the word not pull any punches. May the word be clear to us. May you love us through this word, even if it stings us, Lord God, even if it corrects our heart in a way that reveals weakness in us. Lord, let us not run away from your correction. You are a good father and you care for your people. You are determined, Lord, to erase every iniquity from us, not only in a legal sense, but in a practical sense as well, Lord God. And so you continue to sanctify your people and may we be washed this morning by the water of your word as it is preached. We thank you, Lord God, for your spirit which fills us and gives us the opportunity and the ability to understand what it is you're sharing with us through your word. And so let the scripture ring true today and may you be glorified in our reception of it. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We see immediately, friends, in verse 14, that Hosea's decision to lay Gomer bare and expose her sin that we read about last week, though it seemed very harsh as we read through it, it was not an effort to destroy his wife, but rather it was an attack on her sin and on her pride. The very sin that was driving the family apart needed to be laid bare and, sh and, and exposed. And so Hosea's ultimate intentions 
begin to materialize here in the ending stanza of chapter 2. And don't forget, when we speak about Hosea and his relationship with his, with his wife, this marriage relationship, this literal marriage between husband and wife, is a picture of the greater relationship of God and how he interacts with Israel, who has also played the harlot and has been unfaithful to their God. And so just as Gomer has strayed away from her husband and needs to be chastised in order to bring her back, so too is God willing to chastise his people in order to open their eyes to their sin and to bring them back into a loving relationship with him. We first read the word, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 14. Now we might expect a therefore to connect us with the previous judgmental words, the woe that he was levying upon this woman Gomer and the northern kingdom that she represents. But instead, this therefore is showing a different progression of God's will. God declares through Hosea a series of promises that he is determined to bring about. Israel has been given the chance to act. God has warned her and has been patient with her, just as Gomer has been given the opportunity to return to Hosea, her husband. And what was the result of all that warning? We still have a northern kingdom that continually slanders the covenant and lives in the opposite direction of every promise they made to Yahweh when he brought them near to him to be his people. We also have a Gomer who has acknowledged briefly that she would be better off to be back with her husband, and yet she can't take herself away from the sin that has captured her heart. And so we, we saw a ray of hope last week, and I just mentioned that in verse 7, that Gomer was so stricken by the penalty of her sin and the afflictions of the consequences of that sin that she declared that it would be better for her to go back to Hosea. And yet we don't see any indication in the verses that follow that she actually does so. In fact, Hosea continues to lay uh, his wife bare because she remains in her sin. She seems to be stuck in such a way that though she has some surface level remorse, she can't truly let it go and turn back to her husband. In fact, we get some indication in the language there that she's more concerned about the consequences of her actions than she is about the fact that she's broken her husband's heart by committing this sin. So something beyond Gomer has got to happen. She can't seem to redeem herself from her actions. Perhaps her sin has such a tug on her heart that she cannot pull free from its gravity. You've experienced that at times in your life where it was just so hard to let go of something that had become so normal to you that you had learned to wrongly depend upon. Maybe she quickly forgot the sting of her sin. As soon as the Lord began to relent and give her relief, maybe she ran right back into it at the first sign of relief. Whatever the reason, we're not told, but we're not given any supporting evidence that her acknowledgement that it would be better to be with Hosea actually resulted in real repentance. So the damage is not yet repaired until we get here uh, to verse 14 where God says that he will step in and do what needs to be done. There is no shortage of man-made religion in this world. I'm sure you could attest to that fact. Each one is basically about the same thing. When you study the world's religions, you're going to see a, a wide variety of worldviews, but all of them are grounded in a certain ethic. They're all concerned with what man needs to do to become a good person. There is a God. How do we get to that God? How do we be on that God's good side? Well, it must be about what man does. And that is the, the basic common denominator between every religion in the world, except for Christianity. This is where Christianity stands distinct. Christianity is not devoid of morals or ethics. There is no doubt that there are right and wrong things that God is calling people to do, but that is not at the heart of Christianity. 
Christianity's prime focus is about what God is doing, not about what man should or should not do. It is about what God has accomplished in order to show his, his glory to the world. So I was reflecting um, with a young man, a Christian friend of mine, who just got back home from college. And while he was at college, he was trying to share Jesus with his coworkers when the opportunity would arise. He works at a, at a, a water park in Florida when he's off at school. And so he would say it was really surprising to him that as he was sharing the gospel with people, he ran into almost nobody who would say there is no such thing as God. Almost all of his co-workers would acknowledge the, the probable existence of a God. But these individuals would rightly be grouped into a, a philosophy that we call agnosticism. If you're not familiar with that term, agnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so one who is agnostic means that they declare they do not know. They, they don't have enough information to firmly say, yes, there is a God. They don't have enough information or enough confidence yet to say that it's firmly the God of the Bible. So they're not ruling it out, but they don't really know what they believe about this God. Uh, many of them, he noticed, came from church backgrounds. These individuals were not completely raised outside of the church. They had grown up hearing about the gospel. They had grown up hearing that the Bible is God's book. They'd grown up hearing that Jesus is a historical figure who actually was sent to earth by God and who lived a perfect life and who died to conquer the sins of many. And yet they have very little confidence in the faith that their mother and their father is believing in. And why is that? There are probably a hundred reasons, but one big contributing factor is the state, and I'm convinced of this, the state of preaching in the church at large today. That is why you have so many young people who grow up in an environment where Jesus is respected and revered, and yet when they leave church, they don't know who that God is. Do you, do you realize the primary focus that preaching should be playing in the life of a Christian? God has intended for preaching to be one of the greatest blessings that you experience as you walk through this this difficult and trial-filled world. I acknowledge that as a, a preacher myself, I might sound self-serving at this point, um, telling you how important preaching is, but the truth of the matter is that God has ordained preaching to have a special place in His plan for equipping the saints, giving them all that they need to walk through the world, and building them up in Christ that they might properly reflect the image of God as they were built to do. A widespread failure in preaching will radically affect God's people. Why should we see preaching as so important? Let's let the word itself tell us. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. When the Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his time on earth, he knows, the Lord has revealed it to him, that he's about to be executed. He's about to be killed for what he has preached for so many years. God has been gracious and allowing him to have, to have strong and long ministry. But at this point in his life, he knows that he's, he's about the end of his path. And so he's writing a letter to Timothy, who was like a spiritual son to him, somebody that he cared about greatly, someone who his preaching brought to knowledge of Jesus Christ. Timothy was saved upon hearing the gospel from Paul. And then Timothy came underneath Paul's tutelage and became like a protege for Paul. And so as Paul is getting his affairs in order, as it will, as he's getting ready to be uh, put to death for what he believes in, he writes to his young friend, who is also a pastor, an elder at a church, the church of Ephesus, 
And so what he has to say carries a tremendous amount of weight because these are things of greatest import to him. He's not just talking about the weather. He's not just filling time with his young friend Timothy. He's giving him the essential things he needs to remember as he's not going to be able to say much more to him in this life. And so in 2 Timothy, starting with verse 1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, and here's his instruction to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? He tells Timothy to do what I'm doing right now. He tells Timothy to do what countless numbers of men who have been in prayer and who have been in the word laboring this week are doing right now for their congregations. Preach the word. He's not just to preach anything, right? This is a specific kind of preaching he's called to preach. Preach the word of God, the things that God has specially revealed to the people that they might understand his power, that they might know who he is, not by the opinions of a philosopher, but by the word of God himself through his prophets and through his apostles. Preach. Preach the word. And notice here also that we see that it is not exactly teaching. Preach with complete patience and teaching. So to preach the word is more than just getting up in front of people and giving them more information than they had before. To preach the word is to put before them the truth of God and to challenge them and to say, here is what God has to say. How will this impact you? Are you going to hear this and walk away like you didn't hear it? Are you going to hear this and be humbled of heart? Are you going to repent of your sin and trust in God all the more? Are you going to set aside anything that was distracting you from the Lord and worship Him and Him alone? What are you going to do with this scripture that God has given you today? That's what preaching accomplishes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Look at what Paul says about preaching here. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Notice, you don't get to God through an academic book. You don't get to God through philosophy or careful study, through wisdom, the world did not know God. Goes on to say, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The preaching of the apostles established the foundations of the early church, pointing people again and again to the word of God by which God has revealed himself to people is critical. And it's something that we should be blessed with every single week, throughout the week. Many churches that call themselves Christian preach each Sunday in such a way that the primary focus of the message that is delivered from the pulpit is not the Lord God who gave the word. The focus is the person who's sitting in the pew receiving the word. Now think about how that is a problem. If a pastor's primary focus, the most amount of time they spend is on dealing with the person in the pew and not on the God who sent the message, then what does that do to an individual? You hear sermons all day long. How can God help you with your hurt? What can you do to be a better husband? How might your suffering and unhappiness be addressed? How can you be financially responsible? How can you better use your spiritual gifts? Those aren't issues to be neglected, church. We need practical instruction. We need to learn how to 
live out the Word of God in practical ways. We need to see the impact that Christ's work and the Scriptures have to, to change a person. But if our preaching is dominated by exhortation that focuses firmly on the state of man, if our preaching is primarily anthropological, man-centered, then what are we not preaching about? We're not preaching about God. We are not preaching about the one we gathered to worship here today. The nature of God. His character in being. His holiness. We're not preaching about the fact that He's so much different than us. That we're not just little gods. There is one God in three persons. And that pers that, that those three persons exist in a way that we can barely even comprehend. We need to be hearing about that God. We need to he hear about His attributes and about His character. With the state of modern preaching, a Christian can sit in the pew Sunday after Sunday and then head out into the big, wide, open world having something of an idea of what kind of person they want to be or don't want to be, but having almost no understanding of who the holy God that saved them is. An agnostic can hardly be expected to believe in God if they don't know who God is, friends. Now, it is true some don't care to know. And that is why, in large part, preaching has been shifting towards this anthropological way where it's all about the person in the pew. Because if your goal is not necessarily to exalt God, but if your goal is to fill the pews, you'll get a much fuller church if you preach about the people who come to hear. Because everybody wants to hear about themselves. Everybody wants a word that's going to help them out. It's not as appealing to say, come and hear what a great sinner you are. Come and see this holy God who is perfect and pure and see how you do not match up to him. Come and see how you need him to have hope because without him, you're lost and you're condemned in your sin. Do you see how people might start to think, well, I could preach about the nature and character of God today, but if I do, we might have you know, 80 instead of 100 next week. And sadly, that is impacting not only the people who go to church, but it's impacting the, church, uh, the, the people who go on from church and, and go out into the world afterwards and, and feel like they really don't have any, uh, any need to be in church because they've learned how to be a good person, but yet they haven't learned who God is. This morning, God makes it emphatically clear that the solution to Israel's disconnect from Yahweh and the solution to Gomer's estrangement from her husband, Hosea, those answers are not to be found in man, but in what God alone can do. We're blessed this morning to witness God declare, here is what I am going to do. The nation knows that it is in sin. The nation knows what things must change, but any hope for redemption doesn't hinge on what the nation does. It hinges on what God is about to do for the nation of God. God declares through the prophet a series of redemptive steps that he's going to bring about. And each is characterized very firmly by the phrase, I will. And so the format of our sermon this morning is going to be lined out primarily by the I will statements that God makes in this passage. He declares his intentions. He shows how he's going to resolve this crisis that cannot be resolved by man. So the first statement he makes, God says through the prophet Hosea, I will allure her and speak tenderly to her. This word, allure, 
means to speak to her heart. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31, if you will. God might have seemed a little bit harsh last week when we were looking at the penalties that he was levying against his estranged wife. But we can't miss the true heart that God has for his bride. He intends to allure her away from those who have allured her away from him. And so in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, God spoke through the prophet and said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Speaking of the covenant that the church is in right now. Verse 32, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Take note of that phrase. It's going to come back into play in a minute. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see the tender heart that God has for his covenant people there? As he promises a new covenant, a covenant that is going to replace the old and is going to be in every way better than the old that it replaces. This is pointing forward to that covenant. That new covenant is now possible and must come to pass because Christ has fulfilled the law. He has put a period on the covenant that God made with Moses. The church is a part of the new covenant today because Christ has reigned. He has fulfilled the the covenant of works and he has given his life as a sacrifice so that those who could not keep the covenant of works, which is all of us, might be redeemed by trusting in Jesus Christ who did fulfill the covenant of works. This word from Jeremiah also points in some ways beyond to the fullest consummation of the new covenant. So it's pointing to the covenant we're in today, but that covenant hasn't completely been realized yet because there is a day when Christ will return. We're going to think about that as we take the Lord's table in just a few moments. There is a day when Jesus will come back and a new heavens and a new earth will be established. And those who belong to Christ will be given new bodies that are not disposable like the ones we're in now that do not experience corruption and that are not susceptible to the temptations of sin. At that point of the new covenant, in that full manifestation of the new covenant, you won't have to teach anybody about the Lord God because it will be so fully alive in our hearts that we will all know it. Hosea goes on to say, I will bring her into a wilderness. Now he's alluring her He is speaking tenderly to her. Why is he alluring her into a wilderness? Don't we normally associate wilderness with judgment and with harsh climate? Is this a threat of punishment? No, it is not. It is, in fact, a signpost to the people that Hosea is preaching this message to. This reference to the wilderness is meant to evoke a flashback of God's redemption of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. That's why I told you just a moment ago in Jeremiah to think about that that one part of the passage where it says that he had a hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. With this display, Hosea establishes a historical context for what he's about to accomplish with the new covenant. God isn't speaking to total strangers here. The people of the northern kingdom might be disobedient, but they have history with him, and they know what the wilderness represents. It represents the place to which God brought his people when they were, what? Slaves. When they were under bondage. When they were held captive. 
Through neglect and ungratefulness, the people of God will find themselves again under the yoke of a foreign power. They have become slaves again to sin. For the northern kingdom, it's Assyria who will come in and defeat them. For the southern kingdom, about 150 years later, it's going to be Babylon. They will lose their independence. They will become servants to another nation and their king. As Yahweh called them out of bondage once, however, he will do so again. This prophecy of redemption is given as a metaphorical snapshot picture when we look at the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. But it's going to be given its full expression in the bringing of the gospel to the people of God. This reference to the Exodus salvation and its promises of eventual redemption brings balance to what we read last week in Hosea 3, where Hosea says, Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Do you remember those words that we read last week? These were an echo of what he's going to bring to bear now, this idea that, yes, Israel, you're about to go through a difficult time. It is going to feel like a vastly dry wilderness. You're going to fear for your existence and your survival, but I will bring you through it. And for those who are mine, you will make it. I will bring you through to the other side. There's a redemption coming, and that redemption comes in the form of the new covenant that Christ inaugurates with his own blood. The strain of having to trust in Yahweh to provide for the needs, uh, their needs in the wilderness, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, it exposed a real lack of trust in them. It showed them how much more they needed to put their faith and hope in Jesus. And so too does God intend to use this time of, of exile, this time of diaspora, the, of the people being scattered to show them how much they need the Lord God. So those who are truly His will return and cling to Him and to Him alone. But that's not all God will do. He will allure her. He will speak tenderly to her. He will bring her into a wilderness. But in verse 15, God declares, I will restore some of the gifts that I formerly stripped away from her. Remember last week we talked about how Gomer was shocked because Hosea removed blessings from her and she thought those blessings had been coming from her suitors, from these wicked lovers that she had introduced into her life. And when Hosea pulled back these blessings that he had not yet taken credit for, she realized how much she was missing out on her true love, on this husband that had cared for her so tenderly, even though she had treated him with disrespect. The vineyards being specifically mentioned evoked the memory of God granting the promised land to his people and their success in that promised land, which had them cultivating grapes and seeing an abundance of harvest of figs and other fruits and vegetables. These grapes are not, as Gomer had previously deceived herself into believing, a gift from her unholy lovers, Baal and Marduk and Molech. They are a gift from Yahweh himself. And so he's going to begin to restore some of these blessings to his people. And there's an interesting reference here that, that might escape us if we don't think carefully about the history of Israel. He says that the Valley of Acre will become like a door. And the Valley of Acre refers to the place where upon first entering into the promised land, after the exodus out of Egypt, Achan, an Israelite, disobeyed Joshua, who was the commander of God's army at that time, disobeyed Joshua's instructions. Joshua had said, when we go into this place, Jericho, we're going to level it to the ground. We're not going to take spoils for ourselves. We're going to leave that. And this man, Achan, saw the gold of the, the residents of Jericho and he couldn't help himself. He took spoils of war secretly and he hid them in his tent. 
And this sparked God to allow a military defeat in their next battle, the battle of Ai, a battle against a people who were small and meager that they should have defeated, and yet they lost several soldiers in that battle and had to retreat. Then there was a judgment that followed where God revealed the sin of Achan, and the valley where Achan had committed that sin took a curse upon it. And that valley was called the Valley of Achar from that point forward. And so it put a stain upon the progression through into the Holy Land and the people taking that promised land from that point forward. Here, what God is saying when he says that the Valley of Acre will be a door for my people, he is revoking that history. He's evoking it not in a negative sense, but in a sense of redemption. I will make this place that was a place of curse before, I will make it into a door of hope for you now. God is pointing towards a redemptive new beginning, one that's going to produce the change that Israel cannot bring about for herself. This redemption, of course, is, is, is going to come with the advent of the Savior, the Son of God. Now, along the same lines, you might recall that Israel's first foray into the Holy Land was secured in part when a promise was made to who? To a prostitute. Do you remember that? In Joshua chapter 2, the spies who had gone in to scout out the land in preparation for conquest heard that their presence had been discovered. Some had heard that there were spies from Israel among them, and so there were soldiers trying to find them. And who did they have to turn to? They turned to a woman named Rahab, who was a harlot, but was friendly to the cause of Israel. And a promise was made between the two spies and the woman who hid them. They said, if you will not reveal us, then we promise you, when we come back to conquer this land, as long as you hang a scarlet cord out of your window, which itself is a sign pointing towards Jesus. If you hang a scarlet cord out of your window, we will know where you stay and your family in that place will be spared the destruction that's going to come upon Jericho. So here we see these, these thematic ties between those older stories and the history of God and this story of, of Gomer who has acted as a prostitute but yet has hope. Good will be restored to Israel, to God's bride, but that good will not be mingled with the bad that was formerly there. God gives and God takes away. And in this case, verses 16 through 17 explain how God will do a very important work by taking away his bride's desire for her wicked lovers. So God speaks tenderly to his bride. And then, and then he brings her into a wilderness, right? God is careful with the way that he, with he that he tends to the heart of his wife. And then he restores some of the gifts that he had formerly given to her. And now he says, thirdly, I will remove the names of the false gods from her lips. And in that day, declares the Lord, verse 16, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Salvation is not only a removal of legal guiltiness from us, it is a renewing of the mind. It is a work of God whereby the believer's heart is changed to love different things than they loved before they were regenerated by God. The things that come from our mouths are the things that are hidden in our hearts, aren't they? If our speech is only ever used to speak of worldly, fading things, then what does that say about the heart which is within us? God is going to change the heart of Gomer. He's going to change it to such a degree that she's going to want that husband that she formerly rejected. And the names of her false lovers will no longer be on her lips. She will not desire them anymore. So the removal of the name of Baal from the mouth of Israel is significant as it indicates that God will have no rival. He's going to redeem, but he's not going to redeem and then leave his wife in sin. 
If God is making you his, he will not share you with any other. He's not going to split allegiance. If you belong to God, you belong to him and to him alone. Take note here of of Israel's inability to repent and to cast her idols away. Um, As it is God who will cast them away for her, he is the one who's going to remove from her mouth the name of these false lovers. In just a few moments, we're going we're to experience the blessing of the sacrament of communion. And as uh, is our tradition, we're going to give you a time where you're going to sit quietly and you're going to pray to the Lord God. And, and that is a time of self-reflection. It's a time that helps us to take seriously this, this event of coming forward and taking the elements which represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And as you pray that prayer and you ask the Lord God to reveal anything that, that you missed that you need to repent of, you also hopefully will be taking some time to just thank the Lord God that even though you're not powerful enough to walk away from your sin, that he's powerful enough to turn you away from it. We're all battling something, friends. Christians who have been redeemed by grace are not perfect people. And so we come in here today not to say, I'm qualified for communion this week, but to say, the Lord God has qualified me through his blood. His perfect work has washed me and redeemed me. And because of what he did, I can walk forward as a member of the body of Christ, as a child of God, and I can remember through these elements what price was paid to make me a part of this family. So rejoice in the power that God has to remove from your heart and from your mind even the desire to do what is wicked and evil. Fourthly, God declares to the prophet, I will make a covenant with the beasts and I will reestablish peace. Now this might seem kind of odd, I was very intrigued by this phrase. At first glance, we might guess that this is in reference to the new heavens and the new earth. When we read in Jeremiah 31, and if we were to uh, have more time this morning, I would have loved to go to Isaiah 11, the covenant of the, or the new covenant that is mentioned there and pointed forward to, eventually ends in its perfect culmination where all of creation is rebuilt and there is no longer death and suffering in the new heavens and the new earth. There will no longer be prey and predator. We're not going to have the kind of death that, that is a fear to us here on earth. So maybe that's what he's speaking of here. But in light of the metaphorical framework of Exodus and this taking of God's people out of Egypt and out of their slavery, I think it also behooves us to think of the fact that that time was marked by a scarcity of resources. When they were in the wilderness, there was a threat of attack from wild animals. They were vulnerable out there. And so as God is including the beasts into this covenant, it indicates that the dangers of this life that we're currently in now are real, that we live in the midst of sin. And yet God is going to protect his people through that. Those threatening beasts serve the living God and he will alleviate the threat that they pose to Israel just as he clenched the mouth of the lions in the den into which Daniel was thrown. So too can God keep us from the dangers of the world or use those dangers in a way to chastise his children and bring us back close to him. We read here that the bow and the sword and war will be abolished. I think the only true manifestation of that can be understood as in the final expression of the new covenant, when the new heavens and earth are complete and there is no longer war and conflict on the earth. We're still looking forward to that. And it's something that we keep in mind as we celebrate the Lord's table. We expect that this God who we are grateful for, who is intervened in history, will intervene again when he returns for his people. A fifth declaration. God says, I will betroth her to me and bring the relationship back to the state it was when I first made her my wife. 
Betrothal is a significant concept to the Hebrew people. Uh, it is a little bit different from the engagement that we experience today. When a person gets engaged today, that means they're not yet really in covenantal contract with someone. But in the Hebrew way of thinking of marriage, when you were betrothed to somebody, that was contractual. And that is why when Mary becomes pregnant with a child and Joseph doesn't yet understand that this is the intervention of God's divine hand that he determines in his heart to put her away quietly. That means to legally divorce her without shaming her publicly because their betrothal, though they had not consummated their marriage yet and not been married, that betrothal was legally binding. And so God is saying to here, I am going to betroth Israel to myself. And that's a little strange because Israel had been betrothed to Yahweh for some time, right? It almost seems as though he's renewing his vows with her after a season of struggle that may have been uh, may have brought into question this covenant that they had entered into. Perhaps he is renewing this, this commitment to her. And so here we see the hesed, which is the Hebrew term for steadfast and sturdy love, the, the love of God. It is kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of the agape that we are grateful for in the New Testament. And this kind of committed and faithful love is such a stark contrast to the situational love of human beings, in particular the fickle love that Gomer has shown her husband, Hosea, and the nation of Israel in the north has shown her uh, covenant God, Yahweh. How is he going to betroth her to himself? He describes this betrothal. He says he will betroth her to him forever. Forever. There will not be a break here. The only way this covenant is no longer in jeopardy of being violated is if the responsibility of keeping the terms of this covenant do not rest on Israel. Those terms cannot be upheld by man because what will man do every time? We break covenant. Every time we fall short. And so God is declaring, this is what I'm going to do, Israel. This is what I'm going to do for my people. I am going to betroth her to me and I'm going to be the sturdy hand that keeps this covenant alive and makes it endure and last. It will never be broken apart it will remain what I have declared it to be. If it's our covenant to keep, we fail. But if it's God's covenant to keep, it can be eternally strong. And that paves the way for the rest of the characteristics used to describe this new covenant uh, betrothal. It is a covenant made in righteousness. This isn't Yahweh joining himself to a bride who remains sinful and unfaithful and defiled. But it is Yahweh establishing marriage covenant with one whom he himself has cleaned by the blood of the lamb. He has brought about a cleansing, and so she will no longer be counted as a sinner. Just as the New Testament, the new covenant believer, is no longer counted as a sinner, but is one who is washed clean by the blood of the lamb. The imputed righteousness of Christ makes God's reconciliation to man appropriate. Now he's not joining himself to somebody wicked and defiled, which would be a shame to him. Instead, he's joining himself to somebody who is white as snow thanks to the work that Jesus did. He betroths his people to him in justice. He doesn't ignore the covenant. He fulfills it through the obedience of Christ. He betroths her to himself in steadfast love, meaning that it will continue on. It will not be jeopardized. He does it in mercy, displaying the fact that he didn't have any requirement to do this for her. And yet he is doing it because of his great love for his people. He would have still been a spotless and just God had he allowed all of us to go to the destruction that we've earned. But because of his mercy, he has shown us great love according to his will. 
And this betrothal will happen in faithfulness as well. It will endure. It will continue on. The final verses of the chapter take this redemption of great and epic proportions and brings them back to bear upon the immediate context of Hosea's marriage. Remember, his marriage is this small picture of the greater struggle that's happening between Israel and their God. Let's read verses 21 and 22 again. It says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Because of the language of the two verses, the reference to the heavens and the earth, the realms of God's creation, we cannot help but think of the dramatic climax of the book of Job here. Think about this for a minute. Remember in the book of Job, You have a man who is considered righteous and the enemy, Satan, goes to the Lord God and says the only reason he's righteous is because you give him so much. You treat him with kindness and love, but you take away those external blessings and he's not going to love you anymore. He's not going to want you. It's all about the external. And God says, well, then I'm going to give you freedom, Satan, to go and tempt this man. I'm going to give you freedom to afflict him. I'm going to give you freedom to take away everything but his life from him. And so Job goes through a terrible trial. And he is afflicted in every way. His children die. His servants die. His livestock are slaughtered. Everything he owns is stripped away from him. His body is covered in boils. His wife is no longer a support to him. And yet through this, Job's desire is to remain faithful to the Lord. He tries to bear up underneath this great burden. I know that if I was under that burden, it would be very, very difficult for me to continue to just Bless the name of the Lord. But we see Job trying to do just that. And he has friends who come to him, people he thought were friends, who are continually trying to get him to just confess what wrong thing he did to deserve all of this. And and Job, in honesty, searches his heart and he cannot see why God would have done all of these things to him. Beginning near the end of the book, you start to see Job's resolve shake a little. And his frustrations begin to surface. And eventually he begins to cry out to God and ask God questions about why he's being made to endure this. And so we get to this dramatic crescendo at the end of Job, and it is one of the most powerful moments in Scripture where God speaks directly to Job, who has prayed and asked, give me clarity about why I had to suffer. And God says to him in verse 2 of Job 38, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then what follows is an exceedingly humble cross-examination where God puts Job on the stand and, and basically levies a number of questions at him Questions that he doesn't have the answers for. Where were you when the world was created, when the heavens and the earth were spoken into being? Do you know how to sustain all of this that you see around you? Can you keep this heavens and this earth running like I am doing? Are you responsible for the care of every creature? And he goes through and names some of the details of what exists in the creation and how God himself keeps those things going. Do you conduct the symphony of natural laws that work together to create the ecosystems and which govern and bring order to an otherwise swirling chaos, which is the universe? 
And of course, the answer to every one of those questions from Job in his heart must be, I cannot. I don't have the answer. I don't know. Question after question is brought before him and Job has no answer. It becomes crystal clear that Job had no right or place to question God in the first place, for it is God alone who creates. It is God alone who tames the wild and brings about order. It is God alone whose sovereign hand determines how future will go. And it is God alone who satisfies. He is the only one who knows all things. Job is but a creation. Job, of course, is extremely humbled by God's righteous accusation against him. He repents and acknowledges his error, and he relents of his pride. And God generously and graciously restores Job beyond what he could imagine. And so just as man has no remedy for their sin, it is God who must bring the answer. It is God himself who must intervene and overcome the legal failings of those who were created to bear his name in his image. God plans to bring about not only a restoration of the former covenant, but a better rendition of it. It will be characterized by fulfillment of all the elements that Israel formerly failed to uphold. This is the big picture that is illustrated by the smaller picture of Hosea's covenant marriage. But God intends to restore that smaller sample of grace as well. And so look again at verses 22 and 23 in the language that are contained there. Note that in the last two verses of chapter 2, we have direct reference to three characters that we're familiar with, to Hosea's three children. And we recall the sadness that when these children were brought into the world, God instructed Hosea to give them difficult names, names that represented the judgment of God. Jezreel was the name that said, God will scatter. It was an indication that the nation of Israel, which had been a sovereign land for hundreds of years, was about to be defeated by Assyria and scattered to the wind. His second child was Loruhamah, and Loruhamah means no mercy. God, who had been so merciful and patient with his people, was about to allow them to go through a time when it didn't seem like God had much, much mercy to them at all. And the third child was named Lo-Ami, which means you are not my people. God was going to take a people who were his. He's going to show them what it's like when they, when they reject him and turn him away. And for a time, it was going to feel like they were not a people of God. But notice here in these last two verses, the redemption that God gives, not only to the marriage that Hosea and Gomer have together, but also to their family. Jezreel, that name God scatters, now is seen in a new light. No longer is it a scattering to destruction, but he is scattering like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground that is fertile. Jezreel, that valley that was a, a valley of curse before, will now be a place where the truth of God will flourish. And that scattering of the seed, even the, the act of Assyria defeating Israel and Babylon defeating Judah and the people of God being spread out in the world is going to eventually lead to the gospel spreading throughout the world as well. This new covenant will be opened up to more than just ethnic Israel, although it was never totally cordoned off to just them. But now the rest of the world will see the beauty of God's mercy and grace in powerful ways. And so no mercy is no longer no mercy. Now she's just mercy. The mercy of God has been restored to the people of God. And the last child, not my people. That name will now significantly carry the, the, the meaning of these are my people. My people who not only are loved by me, who are not only shown mercy and care by me, but what does the last line say? Who declare and profess that you are my God. Is that your declaration today, church? 
Can you say that the God of the Bible is your God? Every one of us is a sinner. We have fallen short of the love that God deserves. We don't care for him as we ought to. We don't honor his law as we've been commanded to. And so there remains only two ways that God must deal with our sin. And the first way is condemnation. And I pray that none of, none of us experiences that. The condemnation that comes upon those who break God's law is an eternal separation from him and punishment in, in the, the terrible confines of hell. But there is a second way that God might deal with sin. And it is through the chastisement that a son or daughter receives when they break God's law. We've fallen short of the love that God deserves, but through Christ Jesus, God has made a way to overcome our sin and draw us near to him through the blood of the lamb. You and I cannot do it. We cannot climb the holy ladder to heaven. It's not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that you can inherit from your parents. It cannot be forced upon you by the laws of your, nat- uh, your nation. It must be be the work of God. If God is doing that work, take comfort in the promises of his faithful and steadfast love. Pray with me for a moment. God, we thank you for loving us to yourself and we praise you, Lord God, that through your great and mighty word it is revealed what your plan has been even before the foundations of the earth that you knew your son Jesus, our champion, would crush the head of the serpent underneath his foot. And Father, we're grateful that that has come to pass and that even now you are gathering from every corner of the earth sons and daughters to come and fill your table, to experience your love and to give you the glory that you deserve as their one and only Father. And so we praise you, Lord God, that you had to give this difficult message to Israel. And yet as we read it too, we we realize that that the same can happen to us, Father, that those who trust in you, if we neglect the covenant, if we fall away, Lord, there will be a chastisement. That chastisement will reveal what's truly going on in our hearts. If we are yours, then you will cause us the grief that the Holy Spirit brings when we fall into sin and you will give us a repentant heart. We will, we will eventually turn to choose away from that. We will eventually embrace this covenant that God has brought us into. There will be a restoration. You will wash us clean. And Father, we pray that, that that great reconciliation, if it has not yet happened in someone's heart today, that you would bring it about even in this very place. Lord, let today be the day of salvation for someone who is not yet in that new covenant. We're grateful, God, for the elements that, uh, that represent so much to us. Help us to continue to meditate on their significance as we share the table today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.